Let's find our Bibles. If you have a Bible, please open it up. And uh, let's take a look at Acts chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find one in the seat in front of you. And you'll find Acts chapter 14 on page 782. We're looking at Acts 14, 8 to 18, and also Acts 17, 22 to 31, the two passages that were read for us this morning. When I was in seminary in Canada, for a couple of years, I was an intern at a local church. And one of my tasks as an intern was to plan a, a seminar day to introduce our church to the model of Christian education developed by Rick Warren, the purpose-driven guy. And uh, his model is built around moving people through four uh, stages that all begin with the letter M, membership, to maturity, to ministry, to mission. And, And Warren uses a baseball diamond to picture the church moving people around these bases, first base membership, second base maturity, and so on. And me, being a baseball lover, I really got into this. And so I recruited our drama team to, to do a skit using Abbott and Costello's Who's on First routine, right? And, and I handed out baby Ruth candy bars at the door. And uh, guess what? The whole thing kind of flopped. I mean, people were polite because they're Canadians. But <laughs> Canadians are also hockey people, not baseball people. <laughs> For a lot of Canadians who are used to fast-paced hockey, watching baseball is like watching paint dry as far as they're concerned. My Canadian kids are agreeing. (laughs) Um, And so the whole baseball analogy did not help at all to get them excited about what we were trying to communicate. And that's an illustration of what we want to talk about this morning. And that is how to, to share the gospel, how to share the good news about what God has done for this world through Jesus Christ so that it actually resonates and sounds like good news to the people we're communicating it to. So today we're, we're wrapping up a series on the gospel. And we spent the whole spring looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And, and we saw there Paul lay out the gospel in elaborate detail. He told us that God is powerful and sovereign, that God has made it clear to humanity through his creation, through our conscience, through, uh, of course, as well, through his word. He's made it clear who God is and how we are to live in his creation. We saw, though, that that humanity rebelled against God and, and chose to worship idols instead of their creator and to live against God's wishes. We saw that the result of this sin was death and God's judgment and condemnation and punishment to come for humanity. But we also saw that God loves humanity and God had promised to be faithful to a people that he had chosen out of humanity to be a blessing to the nations, the Israelites, and he wasn't going to let go of those promises. So instead of punishing us in his love, God came down to save us through Jesus Christ God took the punishment that humanity deserved in our place so that our relationship with God could be set right and we could be declared not guilty before God. And we saw that God extends this grace to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God then adopts these people as his own sons and daughters into his family. He gives us the power to put our sin to death. He gives us new life through his Holy Spirit, so that we can start to live more and more like his children. Until the day when we spend forever in a new creation with him. Right? That's all in Romans. It's the gospel. But here's the thing. What we find in Romans is not the only way that Paul shares the gospel. In fact, it's not even necessarily the main way. If you read Ephesians or you read Colossians or you read some others of Paul's writings, you see that they stress other aspects of what God has done through Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel is so big and so multifaceted that there are a number of ways to share it. There are a lot of ways to share the good news because there is so much good news. 
the aspect of the God, the thing, the aspect of the gospel that might sound like good news to one person might not be that exciting or relevant to another person. Just like what resonates with baseball fans might go right over the heads of hockey fans. And that's why it's a good thing that there are various aspects and facets to this good news. And, and so to be able to appreciate and, and to share the good news of the gospel, we need to be familiar with its various facets. Um, and we looked at some of those in the last few weeks. Three weeks ago, Greg Howe showed us a different way to think about the gospel message. And the past two weeks, we saw Jesus share it in a different way using the parable of the prodigal son. Now, going back to Romans, which is where most of us get the version of the gospel we're most familiar with. Here's the thing about Romans. Romans was written to Jews and to Gentiles, non-Jews, who had been hanging around Jews learning the Old Testament. If you read Romans, you see how much of it refers to Jewish stuff and, and addresses a Jewish perspective. So the question for us this morning is, what happens when Paul isn't talking to people with a Jewish background? Does he share the gospel in the same way or does he express it in a different way? That's what we're going to find out in today's passages. Because this morning we're looking at the two stories in the book of Acts where Paul shares the gospel with a purely Gentile audience. In these situations, there are no Jews. And as best we can tell, there are none of the so-called God-fearing Gentiles who were hanging around the Jewish synagogue learning the Old Testament scriptures. Those are the groups Paul is, is usually preaching to in Acts, and those are the groups he's often writing to in letters like Romans and Galatians, the book of Hebrews as well. But what about when Paul communicates with pure pagan Gentiles? Gentiles with no background in, in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. You could think of it as the gospel for dummies. <laughs> um, religious dummies, anyway. Um, and, and I'm a Gentile by background, so I'll put myself in the dummy category. How does Paul address people like us when we have no background in the Jewish God? That's a pretty important question for us today, actually. You, you, don't, you know why? Because we live in a time where people are increasingly in that situation. Unfamiliar with the Bible or anything Judeo-Christian. Students of culture are calling it the repaganization of the West. The Western world's memory of Christianity is quickly fading. Go back 30 or 40 years and when you said God, people knew what you meant. One great being in heaven. When you used the word sin, people knew what that was. And if you referred to a biblical story like David and Goliath or Peter walking on the water, people knew those stories. Well, guess what? Fewer and fewer people today have any clue about any of those things. I've talked to people today who, for them, God is, is a part of all of us who, who lets us uh, excel and become all that we want to be. And for them, the only thing that we need to be saved from is anyone any, or anything who would hold us back or discourage us from reaching our destiny. And ask the average American today who Moses was. And they might say, uh, isn't he one of the disciples of that guy, Jesus? Or ask them why Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. And if they know at all what you're talking about, they might say, well, it was for indecent exposure, right? <laughs> I was hanging around with some of the dads from Josiah's Boy Scout troop one night. And they were talking about the phrase, give a man to fish and he eats for a day. Teach him to fish and he eats for a lifetime. And they were trying to figure out where that came from. And so they said, oh, yeah, we'll ask Dick, the pastor guy. Um, Dick, where in the Bible is that phrase from? You know, it's not in the Bible, right? That's why a few of you are, are snickering. But, but they didn't know that. They figured it was from the Bible. That, that's the world we live in. But often we're still sharing the gospel with such people as if they'd been in Sunday school for years. And then we wonder why they don't relate to what we tell them. But we can't compromise the gospel, right? And if the gospel we looked at in Romans is the gospel, the one and only way to share the good news, then we better stick with it. Well, let's see how Paul himself shares the gospel 
when he's talking to people who don't share his religious background, when he's talking to religious dummies like me, when he's talking to truly pagan people as we see him doing in Acts 14 and 17. So as we turn to these two passages, I want us to start by noticing five things that Paul does not do as he shares the gospel in these stories. And after that, we'll look at five things that he does do. And my goal this morning is not that you memorize all ten things, but rather you grab a hold of one or two of them that might be significant for you. Um, And as you listen for what God may have to say to you this morning. So, first... Paul does not use a lot of religious words that they don't understand. Did you notice that? If if you read those stories, the language is pretty common. It's pretty down to earth. Paul doesn't throw in big Bible words like transgression or justification, which these people might not understand. Also, when he refers to God even, he doesn't assume they know who or what he means by God. No, he describes what sort of God he's talking about because he knows that their view of God is different from his. Second, Paul doesn't quote from the Bible as an authority to back up what he says. In these two stories, he doesn't quote from the Bible. You know, some people today think the Bible is magic. That if you just quote the scripture, it has some sort of magical effect on people. Well, Paul does quote the scripture when he's talking to Jews But when he talks to Gentiles, he does not quote the scripture. Why not? Well, because the Gentiles don't respect the Bible as a holy book or as having any authority. And the Bible isn't magic. It is powerful. But it's most powerful when someone is open to it and when someone respects it. It tends not to be powerful in the same way when someone has never heard of it before and could care less about it. So Paul doesn't quote from Scripture to back up his points, but what he does do is he does give a biblical perspective. The good news that Paul shares with these people is thoroughly biblical. Don't get me wrong. He talks to them about biblical truth, and there's power in that truth. But what he doesn't claim is that it's true because it's written in the Bible. And let me quote the verse. He doesn't defend his perspective by saying it says so in the Bible. Because nobody he's talking to um, agrees that the Bible has any authority. Does that make sense? Okay, third thing that Paul doesn't do. He doesn't argue that his message is true because Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. If, If you know Paul, this is striking because when he's talking to Jews, he's always arguing that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. But he doesn't do this with Gentiles because they don't know these prophecies and they don't respect these prophecies. The prophecies that Gentiles know come from the Delphi Oracle or the local fortune teller. So Paul leaves Jewish prophecy out of it when he's talking to Gentiles. Fourth, Paul doesn't criticize their culture or their sinful behavior or the thinkers and leaders in their culture whom they respect and admire. Now, Paul is distressed about one thing, their idolatry, and we're going to come back to that. But trust me, there are a lot of other things he could have criticized. He could have gone off about uh, the the Gentiles' uh, immoral sexual behavior or their violent behavior. He could have trotted out the Ten Commandments and complained about morals these days. But he doesn't try to persuade them that they do bad stuff. He could have complained about their poets and their thinkers, about how Aristotle and Plato and Homer were leading people astray with vain intellect or godless myths. But Paul doesn't do any of that. In fact, as we'll see, he quotes their pagan poets in a positive light. Fifth thing Paul does not do, he does not talk about the cross when he's talking to these Gentiles. That's surprising. It surprises me. In Lystra, it doesn't even tell us what Paul said about Jesus at all. And in Athens, Paul jumps over the cross to focus on the resurrection. Interesting. Uh, Why is this? We would never share the gospel this way. (laughs) We might skip over the resurrection, though, which is something Paul would never do. But why does Paul skip over the cross and focus on the resurrection? I, I think, again, it's because the people he's talking to aren't Jews. 
they didn't kill a lamb every Passover uh, as a reminder of, of how a substitute took their place so they could go free. They don't have a day of atonement every year where they sacrifice an animal on their behalf so that their sins can be forgiven. There'd be a lot of explaining to do before they were going to understand why it mattered that the Romans killed some Jewish guy on a cross and how that crucifixion is any different from a thousand other crucifixions that they've witnessed or heard about. And so just like last Sunday, we saw Jesus share the gospel in the story of the prodigal son without explicitly mentioning the cross. So Paul doesn't mention the cross here. Now, listen carefully. I am not saying that the cross is not important. (laughs) Far be it. The cross is super important. And Paul always gets around to the cross and stresses the cross as he spends more time with people and they are ready to understand it. All I'm pointing out is that when Jesus is first or when Paul is first presenting the gospel to these Gentiles here, he does not lead with the cross. He doesn't begin with Christ crucified. Instead, he focuses on Christ raised from the dead. And appointed by God as Lord and judge of all. He focuses on Christ, the powerful one, the victor who reigns in life and who will one day judge the world as Lord over all. It's very much what you'll find Paul stressing in Ephesians and in Colossians, where which were also written to to largely Gentile audiences. All right. Well, those are five things that like it or not, Paul did not do. Um. Now let's turn to five things that we can notice positively about what Paul does do when he shares the gospel with Gentiles. First, he finds common ground between himself and his audience. In the first story, he and Barnabas say, we're human beings just like you. In the second story, he he talks to the Athenians about an altar that they have where they worship a God they don't know just to cover their bases, right? In case there's a deity they don't know about, they they worship that deity anyway just so they don't offend it. And Paul says, ah, I can tell you about that God that you don't know, and then you'll be able to worship him better. So Paul finds common ground to start from. You know, Greg Howe has talked to us different times when he's been here about the importance of finding common ground. He's told us how on college campuses, when Christian groups want to share the good news with with liberal activist students, they don't start by by debating culture war social issues. No, what do they do? They work from common ground. They talk, for instance, about sex trafficking because they know other students are as concerned about that issue as they are. And they... They, from that common ground, build a bridge to talk about how Jesus cares about those who are trafficked and how he invites us to get involved in being good news to liberate those people. And and that sometimes that opens up a conversation about how Jesus sets people free from many different things and how he's a powerful and merciful savior. They start by finding common ground, just like Paul does in our stories this morning. Second, Paul also quotes from the Gentiles' own poets and thinkers. Instead of quoting scripture, he appeals to voices that his audience already respects to to make and to strengthen his case. This would be like today if Paul was talking to the typical American stay-at-home mom, Paul might quote Oprah. Or if uh, Paul was talking to a sophisticated Manhattan intellectual, he might quote from the Atlantic Monthly or, or from the Huffington Post. Or if Paul was talking to a post-hippie baby boomer, he might quote Bob Dylan. Or if Paul was talking to my kids and their friends, he might quote Captain America. <laughs> but in Acts 17, who's Paul talking to? He's talking to educated Athenians. So he quotes their 6th century B.C. poet Epimenides and their 3rd century Stoic poet Eridus because all truth is God's truth. And when these voices can reinforce something that's biblical truth, he quotes these voices. He looks for Gentile voices in the culture that the audience already respects who are saying true things, and he quotes them to support and reinforce his points. 
third thing Paul does do. He keeps the focus on God and on God's story. Now, this is where it begins to really become the rub for us as well. Paul is is God focused. He isn't human focused. Paul isn't interested in making people's personal stories the center of everything and then selling them a God who can fit into their story to make them better. No, what is Paul interested in doing? He's interested in making God's story the center of everything and showing how God is inviting people to come find their place in God's story. You see, in the first case, it's really all about us. We're at the center of everything. And we may accept God, we may accept Jesus to make our life better, to fulfill us, to make us happy, to make us a more successful student or business person or a more fulfilled consumer, or to provide us with end-of-the-life fire insurance so we've got all aspects of our life covered. But in these cases, we're really at the center, and it's really God who revolves around us. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is all about God's story. And how God invites us to find our place in him, in his story. And sure, good things happen for us when we, when we do, because this is the story we were made for. When we get in sync with God's story, we are in sync with ourselves. We are in sync with the universe as it was intended to be. We are in sync with our creator. And as God welcomes us back into our proper place in his kingdom, we experience his love and his acceptance. We experience his healing as the the lame man at the city of Lystra did. We experience his deliverance and we begin, or he begins, to transform our lives. There's plenty of good news for us, but us isn't the point. God is the point. Notice how Paul keeps the focus on God. He tells them about the God who is very great. A God who made the sea, made the earth, even made the heavens. The God who is higher than all, who made everything. The God who is Lord of heaven and earth, ruling over all. The God who doesn't need people, who doesn't need them to, excuse me, build him a temple or to serve him as if he needed anything that we could give him. In fact, God gives us everything that we need, life itself and everything else, Paul says. This God created all people. He's the Lord of history. He spread out the nations and and set for each nation where they are to live and when their time has come to rise and to fall. God is very great. Paul also tells that God is very good. How God shows kindness by sending rain so that our crops grow. How God provides us with food and fills our hearts with joy. This is the God Paul is announcing to them and inviting them to align their lives with. For Paul, it's all about God and God's story. Fourth thing Paul does, he challenges their idolatry. Because Paul knows that God is so great and so good. As a result of that, Paul's distressed by the idolatry, the worship of false gods that these Gentiles are engaging in. In Athens, he goes around, he looks at all their temples and their statues to Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes and Bacchus, and he's deeply distressed. In the situation in Lystra, when it turns out the people want to worship them, Paul and Barnabas are so distressed at this idolatry, they tear their robes. Interesting. Paul doesn't even mention their other sinful behavior. He doesn't criticize their culture or their leaders, but he's super distressed at their idolatry. You know, I think for Christians today, it's often just the opposite. We complain, we judge the morals, the values of the people around us. We complain about our leaders and the negative influences of today, but we're pretty okay with idolatry. Maybe that's because we're caught up in idolatry too. Maybe instead of finding our place in God's story, we've fallen into the trap of trying to get God to revolve around us and our story. And when God doesn't do a good enough job at meeting our needs or our wants, we help him out by idolizing and pursuing other things as well. And so we hardly recognize the idolatry around us. 
We see an ad glamorizing a fancy car that's going to make us cool or sexy or sophisticated or keep us safe. And instead of being repulsed at the idolatry behind this ad, we want that car. We pass today's temples of worship like Hollister and Best Buy. And instead of being distressed, we wander right in and buy something else that we don't need. Could it be that we don't get distressed at idolatry like Paul did in part because we're so used to worshiping idols ourselves? Well, why is Paul worried about idolatry anyway? Well, if you remember all the way back to the early spring when we looked at Romans right in the beginning, chapter 1, we saw that idolatry is the root and the starting point for all other sin. It's the sin behind all sin. It's when we turn away from God and we decide we can't trust God completely, that, that God's not good enough, that God doesn't have our best interests at heart. So we don't give him the honor he deserves. We don't acknowledge his greatness, but instead we go off and we seek and we build our own greatness, our own security. We put ourselves at the center and to the extent that we acknowledge God at all, it's, it's only to the extent that he can help us achieve our own agenda. And then, because we've diminished God, because we've shrunk him down to meet our needs, we wind up replacing him with all sorts of other things and viewing him like the things we've made with our own hands. That, Paul says, is the ultimate issue. And so for these Gentiles who don't have the whole Bible full of teachings about God, Paul Paul skips all the other sins and cuts right to the chase, focuses right on the root. There's a good and a great God over all who made you and who loves you. And instead of honoring him and appreciating him for who he is at the center of it all, you've put yourselves at the center. And then you've run off and you've worshipped shiny stuff that your own hands have made. Paul addresses their idolatry, which leads finally to the fifth thing Paul does. He asks the people to repent. Acts 14, 15 and Lystra, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things. Acts 17, 30 in Athens, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul appeals to the people to respond, to change their ways, to turn back to God. He says, God is great. God is good. God made everything for your blessing and enjoyment But you turned away from God to worship other things. Granted, you were ignorant and God let you go your own way. He overlooked your ignorance for a time. But now he's calling you back, inviting you to return, return to him before it's too late. Because now God has sent a man, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead to get your attention. And now God has placed Jesus at the center so that all things now revolve around him. And by Christ, God is set to judge all peoples for their idolatry, for their turning away from him to worship the works of their hands. So repent, Paul says, turn back to God before it's too late. Turn to Christ. Let Christ be the center. Put your own life in orbit around him. Find your place in his story. Submit yourself to him. And the good news is that God is inviting you to do so. Through Jesus Christ, God is calling you, calling people to change, to come back to him, to be restored. Paul doesn't spell it out in detail, not yet, with these Gentiles, but there's grace implied here. There's forgiveness. There's a second chance and a new beginning. Okay, so that's how Paul shares the gospel with Gentiles. We see it in Acts 14. We see it in Acts 17. It's a bit different from what we read in Romans when Paul's talking to Jews and Gentiles who are familiar with the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. It's not a different gospel, but it's a different facet of the gospel, more relevant and more intelligible to those that Paul is speaking to. And I hope that we can grow to know the gospel well enough as a people in its various facets that we know how to make 
the gospel sound like good news to the individual people that we're speaking to? Let's pray. God, thank you for your good news. Thank you for reaching out to us through Jesus Christ and calling us back to yourself. Thank you that your gospel is so big that there is so much good news that it can't be exhausted in one 30-minute sermon or even a series of 30-minute sermons. Thank you um, for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross to forgive us and reconcile us to you. Thank you for raising him uh, again to defeat the power of death, to inaugurate a new creation, and for seating him above all as Lord to begin restoring all things, to be putting broken things back together again, to be releasing those who are captive, to be um, exercising power over everything that's evil and wicked and enslaving in the world that you set people free and bring them into your family, embracing them, embracing us to be your people and to share your good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen. preparation for the communion for the Lord's Supper, we'll sing a couple of verses of We Come, O Christ, to You. I would ask Linda to play through that once before we sing. To help us prepare for our time of taking the bread and the cup, our communion service, I'd like us to go to the foot of the cross and just listen to the words that uh, Dr. Luke wrote for us. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah. Prove it by saving yourself and us while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. When he said, Jesus, remember me, 
when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Just a couple of brief thoughts. Did you notice how many times they told Christ to come down from the cross? Three times. The leaders and the people, the soldiers, and one of the criminals. Why didn't he? The man who could walk on water? The one who could raise the dead? He didn't, because if he had saved himself... He couldn't have saved us. That was his whole purpose. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What kind of love is that? We think about that as we take the bread and the cup. And did you hear what the criminal said, the the second one? But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. There was a recognition there of sin, a life gone wrong because of sin. But he recognized that Christ hadn't done anything wrong. He was up there hearing everything. How wonderful that Christ should be our substitute. The judge says you're guilty. And someone steps forward. I'll take that person's punishment. And you walk out the door a free person. That's our God. That's what Christ made possible. And lastly, what he said to Jesus. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today... You will be with me in paradise. What a hope. All because Christ's body was broken and his blood shed for us. Our God is an awesome God. Let me ask the the ushers to come forward. Mike Lamone, if he would, give thanks for the bread. Amen. Now I'm going to ask as you take the masa that you hold it until we can all eat it together to show the unity that we have in Christ Jesus.
Shall we take the bread? I'm going to ask Liz Royman to give thanks for the cup. Liz? Lord, we thank you so much that you shed your blood to forgive us for our sins. And we right now just acknowledge that we are in so much need of forgiveness for things we've done and haven't done that we should have done. And often we are not even aware of what these things are. Please now bring to our minds what we need to ask forgiveness for. And we pray for a new start this week. Please feel free to drink the cup as it gets to you to show our individual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, uh, we were going to call forward everybody who's going on the Wayfair camp trip. Uh, come on up. I know some of you are in the lounge, too, so you got to come across the hallway and come on up. So we have 14 students and four adults who are heading out this morning to um, Kentucky. Here they come, down from up top. Yay! Uh, we're going to be at Wayfair camp, which is run from some of the same people with 3DM Ministries both service and discipleship. So it's a 700-plus-mile journey, so we'll drive a lot today and drive a lot tomorrow. Stay there Monday to Friday, and we'll be back here Saturday. We would um, really appreciate your prayers during the week, and I've asked David if he would pray for our group here too. Um, Pray that we would hear God. Um, 
be able to hear God, what God wants to say to each of us this week, and and then learn in community um, how to do what God is asking us. So, David, if you would, please. Thanks. It's an impressive group. Very good. I know my wife and I have gone on these things in the past, and it, it's just one of those very special weeks in the lives of both children and adults. Um, and so we're just looking forward to great things for them. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I ask you would be with these young people and, and the adults also that are going with them. I pray that uh, there'll be a good time of fellowship, that there'll be cohesiveness as they work together. We pray, Lord, as they engage in the different activities and works that they'll be doing this week, that you would help them to see that what they are doing is all a part of the work of your kingdom. And we pray that they, their hearts might be open to you, uh, that they may realize that you want to teach them something very special this week, and that you would draw them closer to yourself, and they, they might learn those gifts of truth that you would teach them. And uh, through this, that they may grow as your children in effectively living for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Shall we all? Yeah. Shall we all? Why don't you just stay here? Shall we all stand and sing uh, and say the benediction together? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.